we're reading from, from John chapter 1, and that's verses 1 through 18 on page 1062 in the Church Bibles. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself is not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thank you, Heidi. Well, who is Jesus? Um, Of all the things you could say... Uh, What would your top-of-the-head answer be? On one level, it's a question that a toddler can answer with stunning clarity. At the same time, it's a question that has blown adult minds uh, from the first disciple sitting in there in that boat after they watched him calm a storm with a word. Who is he? To historians today wondering how this Jewish teacher who died in disgrace shook the world. To elderly brothers and sisters reading their Bibles and still being surprised and delighted by the grace and truth that comes through Jesus. And can I say, if you're here wondering about Christianity or perhaps reconnecting with church, this is the question that we'd dearly love to help you get answers to. Because we're a church that's convinced that knowing Jesus, really knowing him, is life-changing. So who is he? It's a practical question. Because if the Jesus in your mind's eye is a distant judge, then your life of following him uh, might miss some of the joy that he wants to make available to you. But if you see him as only a bearded softie, you'll probably miss some of the life-changing challenges that he confronts you with. John wrote his gospel 
so that we might know Jesus and by trusting him find life to the full. And this beautiful intro that we've just heard lays out some huge claims about Jesus, which John then unpacks for about 20 chapters. We're in week two of kind of a deep dive just into the intro, so we'll be really tuned in for the rest. Uh, Last week, Matt opened by exploring the massive claim that Jesus is fully God. As John puts it in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a bold claim. And it would be worth listening to Matt's sermon on the podcast if you missed it. This week, we're exploring the equally crucial claim that Jesus is fully human. The word who was God in the beginning became flesh and lived with us. Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human. And what seems like a tension in our minds... It's something the Bible holds together very comfortably. Now, as you hear those parallel statements, I wonder which you find harder to believe. That Jesus is fully God or that Jesus is fully human? My guess is in our culture today, we probably find it easier to nod our heads at the idea of Jesus being a man. After all, that's something that you could verify through historical research. Even so, I want to suggest that Jesus being fully human is something we might find it challenging to take hold of all the implications of. Simple truth with mind-blowing implications. Let me try and show you what I mean by trying to bring out the shocking truth of God becoming flesh and then bringing out three big implications of Jesus' humanity. So the shocking truth of God becoming flesh. Two of the big belief systems that shaped the world of John's first readers were Greek philosophy and the Jewish Old Testament. And one of the key teachings of the Old Testament is that God is separate from his creation. That's essentially what the word holy means. When God spoke through his word at creation, he made something out of nothing. And though God clearly loves his creation, especially humans, he's always remained distinct from it. So the second commandment, do not make an image of me. Because who are we? to reduce the infinite creator to something created. And what's more, because of our rebellion against God, the physical creation has been frustrated. There is death, brokenness, and uncleanness everywhere. Now, Christians believe all of that too. But just imagine being one of those early readers of John, with that all in the background. Who would have dreamed that God would come through on his Old Testament promises like this. John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Really flesh? The holy God not only comes into direct contact with his creation, but makes himself part of it? What would motivate God to do that? 
Mix in a bit of Greek philosophy and it all gets a bit more troubling. Uh, One key Greek idea was that the physical world is inherently evil. You know, what you do with your body, hey, it doesn't really matter because it's basically garbage that one day you'll hopefully transcend. The goal is to relate to the pure spiritual world. Now, that's different to the Old Testament teaching. But can you see, if you're kind of around, you're just picking up the vibe of these things, you'd basically think flesh is bad. Spirit is good. And then John says that the pure, holy, divine word became flesh. God with skin and sweat glands. Isn't that a bit irreverent? One of the first errors that shook early Christians was this thing called docetism. Uh, Who is Jesus? Docetism uh, said, well, of course, well, he couldn't have been human because as we all know, the physical is dirty and unimportant. So God would never lower himself like that. Jesus just seemed to be a human. John 1 was one of the key passages that people opened up to say, hang on. I think Jesus is challenging our preconceived ideas here. God becoming flesh. It continues to shock today. Many coming from a Muslim background find it inconceivable that Jesus actually died on a cross because there's no way a holy God would come that close to death. And so God must have swapped someone else in on the cross at the last second. The word became flesh. God became a fetus. He grew inside of Mary and was born with all the blood and pain. That's a part of that experience. God the Son cried and needed to be fed. He went through puberty. Can you start to feel some of the tension points where Jesus being fully human is a tad more challenging than we first thought. Our secular Western culture, I think, still has a strange relationship with the physical. On one level, we're prone to putting it on a pedestal with our love of possessions and the perfect body. But at the same time, we're still a bit influenced by that Greek philosophy. You can hear it in the phrase, mind over matter. The idea that physical realities come second to our choices. And yet God came in flesh and blood matter. And I do wonder whether this issue of an unsure relationship with the physical does surface for Christians. Are we prone to kidding ourselves into a spiritual-physical divide? like buying into the idea that my relationship with God is a spiritual thing. It belongs in the domain of the abstract, some comforting ideas, maybe a helpful attitude, but it doesn't touch the practical and physical details of my life. Flesh bad, spiritual good, opens the door to spiritual gods, flesh mine. 
if you're in a place where you're not sure if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, one temptation you may have is to keep Jesus in the abstract. Maybe as an interesting philosophy. But the Bible's claim that he is God turning up as one of us in time and space means that we don't get to do that. Jesus is more than a metaphor. He's a physical, historical reality. And so the challenge is to listen to him on his own terms and see if the massive things he claims are lies or the truth. Jesus is fully human. It seems basic on the surface, but the implications, that's something else. So let's look at three of them now, and I hope that you'll be persuaded that not only is this teaching about Jesus true, but also beautiful and necessary. So implication one, God in solidarity with the suffering. This is where the rubber really hits the road. You know, as with any worldview, it's all well and good to talk about beliefs. The question is, do they actually make sense of life? When suffering hits. So who is Jesus in relation to the stresses and strains of human life? Is he a life coach? You know, standing at the sidelines saying, you can do this. Is he the cold disciplinarian? You know, grimly saying, it's for your own good. Or perhaps what we fear most Is he too busy with more important things to worry about the problems of one person's life? Where does the Bible point us? Well, John takes us to a village called Bethany, to the graveside of a man named Lazarus. Lazarus left behind two sisters, and Mary and Martha, they're really suffering. Where is God in all of this? Well, Jesus comes to see his dear friends, Mary and Martha. John tells us that Jesus loved this family. And he comes to show the glory of God and demonstrate the hope of the resurrection. But John wants us to notice that he does that as one of us. So he records that when Jesus sees Mary weeping... He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And when he sees the tomb of his friend, we get the shortest verse in the Bible. John 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. A ghost that only seems human can't weep. An idea and a philosophy can't weep. But Jesus does. This is our God wearing his heart for the world on his sleeve. Jesus, fully God and fully human, enters fully into solidarity with us. He feels real anger and sorrow at the way sin has broken our world. And so he cries real tears at the graveside of a real friend. Our God sympathizes in the true sense of the word, sympathizes with us in our sorrows and our joys. 
Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way. Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, if you've ever enjoyed playing on a sports team or maybe in a band, you'll know that we humans need solidarity. People alongside you, going through the same things as you, can get you through so much. God made us like that. And because he loves us, he didn't, didn't leave us alone in our world that we broke with sin. He came as one of us. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to be let down by friends. He's felt family tensions, exhaustion, frustration. He knows what it's like to be lonely. Our creator God doesn't stand at a distance. He took on flesh and came right down into the depths with us. He's not ashamed to call us his sisters and brothers. He knows what temptation feels like. He knows the should I, shouldn't I battle. The accelerated heartbeat as, you know, your feelings call us to do something stupid. He knows. Even in the darkest watches of the night, our brother is there in solidarity with us. And he's also the God that has the power to do something about the darkness. Jesus wept. I reckon one of the most difficult questions people ask about Christianity is about the problem of suffering. Why would a loving God allow it? It's difficult intellectually. It's terrible personally in our bewildering experience of pain. Now, I'm convinced that God tells us what we need to know, even if it's, there's more that we'd like to know. And I'm totally convinced that the Bible offers real hope in suffering, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But I don't think that I could give you a quick and neat explanation of suffering and evil right now. And I hope you'd be a bit suspicious if I did. Here's the thing though. Even if I can't explain why God allows this particular suffering or injustice to hit at this particular time, because the word became flesh, I know that I can always trust God's motives. God didn't give us a pep talk or a clever loophole to avoid the reality of pain. He gave us himself. He has skin in the game, literally. Jesus took on flesh so that he could do something about the problem of suffering. He suffered as he brought about the solution. He wept real tears. He gained real scars in his flesh. So even while we wait for that solution to be fully brought about, I know I can always trust his motives because he weeps with me. And that is the comfort we need. To know that nothing is off the table when it comes to prayer 
because our God knows exactly what we're going through. To know that no matter how lonely you are, you're never alone because Jesus, your brother, is alongside you. I don't know what's going on for everyone, um, but I am sure that there are many in this room who are suffering right now. When we're in that dark place, I know it can be hard to remember lots of content, even if it's helpful, but I hope we can remember the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. God didn't stand at a distance. He came right into the dirt, all the way to a Roman cross, which leads to implication two. God is for us as the sacrifice for sin. Understanding the incarnation of God the Son, kind of our topic for today, it may sound like a bit of a niche, nerdy topic at first, uh, but I hope you're already starting to see how crucial it is. We're about to explore how it helps us understand one of the most treasured and central teachings of the gospel, namely the cross of Christ. What was happening that first Good Friday? If the man hanging on that cross was just a man, oh, it would have been a tragedy, a haunting image of what human cruelty does, maybe even an example of self-sacrifice. But in the end, it would be just another gruesome death in the Roman Empire. But that's not just anyone on the cross. That's the God of the universe doing something powerful to extinguish our problem of sin and death once for all. We really need to hold those two truths about Jesus together so that we might be properly bowled over by the grace of the cross, fully God and fully man. Because this is not just a divine spirit seeming to die. This is God in the flesh being crucified by people he created. There's this really ironic moment in John 11. You know, after Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the grave, the religious leaders get all threatened. We can't let everyone keep flocking to Jesus because otherwise the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. And then the high priest Caiaphas speaks up, come on everyone. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And John adds this note. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. Caiaphas spoke way better than he knew. He's just looking after number one and his gang at this point. Little does he realize that it is exactly God's plan that one man would die for the people, not to spare them from the Romans, but from the end of the world judgment that we all rightly face. As a human being, Jesus goes in as our leader he needs to be one of us to go in our place. And so the king 
dies to save his subjects. And his subjects just happen to be all the scattered children of God everywhere. The irony continues in John 19 as Pontius Pilate leads Jesus before the raging crowd in a crown of thorns. And he says to the crowd, Behold the man. He thinks he's making a mocking statement. But he says more than he realizes because he is the human being. The man who did what no other man or woman has done. And that is obey God perfectly, even to the point of death on a cross. And so as the human, he did what we were all made to do and yet struggled to achieve because of our sin. He brought glory to God. From where Pilate sits, it's a pathetic moment. But John makes it very clear that the cross is Jesus' moment of glory. And then, as the human being, he dies. And his humanity is on full display as he calls out from the cross, I am thirsty. God the Son did not exempt himself from the full brunt of human suffering, including the terrible thirst that was just one side effect of the torture of crucifixion. That little detail is concrete evidence that our sins are paid for in full. As Romans 8 puts it, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. God is perfectly good and holy and will not leave sin uncondemned. The amazing thing is when you put your trust in Jesus, you find that your sin has already been condemned in his flesh not yours. And that's not just a symbolic saying. That's a flesh and blood reality. Jesus fully entered into human experience to pay the price of our redemption. Uh, One very early Christian uh, wrote, the unassumed is the unhealed. And that is, if God the Son didn't take on flesh, then our bodies are not redeemed. If Jesus didn't really have a human mind, our minds are not redeemed. But he did. It's right to say that Jesus is the saviour of our souls. As long as we don't get all Greek philosophy about it and think that means he just saved the intangible bit of us. Jesus took on a human body, soul, mind, emotions in order to pay for the sins of our bodies, souls, minds, emotions, in order to reclaim our bodies, souls, minds, emotions. It's all saved by him, and it all belongs to him. And what an assurance. If you believe in Jesus, no matter what you've done with yourself, no matter how you're going in your faith at the moment, your sins are paid for in full. What do you think God's attitude is towards you when it comes to your sin? 
Are you ever tempted to think of him as kind of a begrudging boss? Like, I'll let you off the hook this time, but watch yourself. Or maybe like a grumpy dad who loves you because he has to. That's what parents do. But you're not really sure if he's happy about it. In our world where we struggle to treat each other right, it's no wonder we find it hard to grasp the perfect love of our Father God. But the incarnation of God the Son drives us to the amazing conclusion that we can't see God as a begrudging boss or a grumpy dad because he didn't stand at a distance from us. He doesn't even wait for us to come to him. God didn't hesitate to come right down to our level, to come into direct contact with our mess. God is so invested in our redemption that he turned up personally and physically to pay the cost himself. And so when we come to him with our sin again and again, we can rest in the confidence that God is with us and for us. He is so ready to forgive. If that weren't the case, he wouldn't have turned up. Implication three, God does not despise his physical creation. John stresses that after Jesus made that sacrifice, condemning sin in the flesh, he rose again physically. He said to doubting Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Not only does that challenge our doubts about the fact of the resurrection, it says something about what God thinks of his creation. When God created the heavens and the earth and people, his verdict was good. And then our sin ruined everything, death reared its ugly head, our bodies became enslaved to sin till God sent a saviour. But the problem wasn't with the physical nature of our bodies or creation. It was what we did with them. Jesus' physical resurrection is God reaffirming his yes towards his creation. When he rose, he didn't break free from the prison of his flesh. He didn't become one with the universe. He walked out of his tomb and ate and drank with his disciples. And the physical ascension of Jesus tells us that there is now a man in heaven. Which gives a wonderfully distinct shape to our future hope. When we talk about heaven, uh, do we get images of floating in the clouds, entering into some sort of interdimensional spiritual state like the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi? Those ideas come from other philosophies, not from the promises of God. The fact that the word became flesh and rose again bodily tells us that our future is not an escape from the physical, but a renewal of it. Those who throw their lot in with Jesus are promised life in a new creation. A physical world remade 
a bodily reality where we will get to enjoy relationship with God face to face forever. I'll still be me, you'll still be you, but more me and more you than we've ever been because our bodies will be fit for eternity. No more sin, death or crying or pain. Finally able to enjoy the life God created us for. If that's our future hope, then there is meaning as life as God's creatures today. Because our bodies aren't just a shell to escape from, they matter so much more. So when we suffer physically, we don't despair, we yearn. Christians are not unfamiliar with the pain of disease, mental illness, injury and disability. But we also know the promise of Jesus. There's a road ahead that's better than an escape. Jesus himself will renew our bodies. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, finish then your new creation. God does not despise his physical creation. So let that be a challenge to that lurking trace of Greek philosophy, body bad, spirit good. Our creator calls us to relate to him through our physical lives and decisions. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 puts it. The decisions that we make to honour God when it comes to our sexual conduct. Taking care of our bodies. Treating the environment with respect. Receiving food and drink with thanksgiving. Concrete acts of spiritual significance. God's yes to his physical creation challenges us to learn to be thankful for the bodies that he's given us. And I know that for some of us, that's a big thing to say. The world we live in gives us so many reasons to be unhappy with our bodies. Some of us are deeply uncomfortable with the way we look. Some of us feel at odds with the biological gender God has made us with. Many of us would rather treat our bodies as a bit of an afterthought. We're pretty quick to take a mind over matter approach and deprive them of rest, healthy food. But God the Son didn't shrink back from taking on flesh. How can we honour him with what we do with ours? We don't want to go to the other extreme and idolise our bodies But what does it look like to treat them as a good aspect of how God has created us? One thing I found really helpful to wrestle with over the last little while uh, is learning to accept the limitations that come with being an embodied creature. God made us with a need for sleep and rest. We're bound by space and time, and we can actually only be in one place at one time. We can do a certain amount of things per day. And I don't know about you, but in our busy world, it's so tempting to see those things as a curse. But the incarnation reminds me that God doesn't. 
God created us to honour him in and through our embodied lives, including our limitations. Sometimes we push those limits for good reason, but I wonder if sometimes we push them because we think, I've got too many important things to do than to sleep, and inadvertently end up trying to be little gods rather than human beings. Knowing that God doesn't despise his physical creation is so freeing. And the question I want to leave us with now is, do you really believe that God is with us and for us? When we struggle to believe that, come back to the wonder of Jesus, fully human The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. He's with us, our brother in suffering. He's for us, the sacrifice for sin. He is God's yes to the goodness of creation. For us in the physical responsibilities, yearnings and limitations of human life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, please lead us ever deeper into the glories of who Jesus is. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming one of us and even being willing to call us your sisters and brothers. Please comfort us with the reality of your sacrifice and your solidarity with us. Amen.